0: Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samir Keynes, the trade and globalization editor for The Economist.
1: And I'm Chad Bowne, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics.
0: This episode is about semiconductors. Semiconductors are everywhere. They are the tiny electronic chips that go into your smartphone, your, your computer, and your car. If you have ever wondered why Silicon Valley got its name, Well, semiconductors are made out of silicon. One of my colleagues at The Economist wrote in 2018 that if data are the new oil, chips are the internal combustion engines that turn them into something useful.
1: Semiconductors are super important. They've also caused a lot of trade fights. In the 1980s, things got pretty tense when the Japanese started competing against the American chip makers. This episode, though, is about the big fight today. It's about the digital infrastructure of the future, it's about national security, and it's about a whole
2: lot more.
1: We're going to hear from a very special guest.
2: Kevin Wolf. I'm now a partner at Akin Gump, DC-based law firm and their trade group. I was the assistant secretary of commerce for export administration, which meant that I was responsible for the licensing and policy administration of the export administration regulations.
1: Kevin is a big deal. He basically ran America's export control policy under the Obama administration. And in this episode, export controls are going to come up a lot.
0: Semiconductors are amazing. Making a chip to go into a smartphone is insanely complicated. One company can have thousands and thousands of suppliers. And they can cross a ton of borders in the process of being made. A true product of globalization
1: Semiconductors are also really expensive to make. First, you have to do a ton of research and development, and and that costs a lot of money. R&D is estimated to be 15 to 20% of annual sales revenue in the industry. Only pharmaceuticals spends more than that. You have to make fancy software to design the chips. Then you have to actually design the chips. And then after you design the chips, then the next step is, is actually manufacturing the chips. And that means building what's called sometimes a foundry or a fab.
0: These fabs or semiconductor manufacturing facilities, which I guess sounds less snappy, um, they are incredibly automated. You need to buy some serious bits of machinery that are super, super specialized and really expensive. They're also really sensitive. They need hyper clean rooms. When I was traveling YouTube, uh, I saw one video where a reporter had to take an air shower and essentially wear a hazmat suit before she was allowed in. Basically, the chips are so small that it's really easy to damage them with, with bits of dust.
1: These fabs are also really expensive to set up. A new one can cost more than $10 billion. And remember I said R&D ate up 15 to 20% of annual sales revenue in the industry. Well, the, the, the capital, the, the equipment costs to outfit one of these fabs accounts for another 10 or 15% of, of annual revenue. That's more than the the auto sector or or chemicals. Only the energy industry actually spends more than semiconductors. And remember, they have to build big oil rigs and, and power plants and things like that.
0: A lot of these industries have one of these big fixed costs, but the fact that the semiconductor industry has two means that in practice, this industry has some pretty big barriers to entry. You can't just wake up one day and say, hey, I'm going to go into semiconductor manufacturing. Um, This is an incredibly high-tech thing. There are very few companies in the world on the cutting edge.
1: The machines to outfit those fabs are so high-tech and complicated that there also aren't many companies that that make them either. And the same really goes for the software to also design the chips.
0: In the olden days, many, many years ago, it used to be the Americans and the Japanese designing and and manufacturing these chips.
1: So the the olden days are the the 1970s and, and 80s. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. they're very olden days, ancient times. Yeah. Now, it is much more fragmented. Some of the production stages are just so expensive that some companies are like, you know what, we're just going to do the design. Or, you know what, we're just going to handle the fabs.
1: Now, there are some big name companies like Intel and Samsung that do both. They, they do the design and the manufacturing themselves from, you know, the, kind of the whole thing from start to finish. But in other cases, it's split. So take companies like America's Qualcomm or or NVIDIA. They're really focused on the the R&D and and the design, coming up with the ideas for the semiconductors in the first place. They're the ones trying to push the frontier and make your your phone work faster. A lot of those design companies are American. And so what they do is they do their designs here and then send them out to a, a separate manufacturing company to actually manufacture the semiconductors. And a lot of those companies are located in different countries.
0: The biggest one is based in Taiwan, and it's called TSMC. It's actually in the top three semiconductor sellers in the world. It's it's right up there with Intel and Samsung. So if you haven't heard of it, and you probably haven't, feel embarrassed by that. Now, this fragmentation started in the 80s with the idea that, you know what, other companies can fork out the billions of dollars to do all the research and development, while these manufacturing companies would focus on the the making bit. They'd fork out all the money for the machinery. And all this fragmentation means that only around an eighth of globally installed manufacturing is in the US. More than 80% is in Asia, in Taiwan, South Korea, and China.
1: So what happens to semiconductors after they have been manufactured? Well, basically, they're assembled into stuff. The Semiconductor Industry Association, this is the the big U.S. lobby group, says that about one-third of semiconductors are used in things like smartphones and tablets, and almost another third goes into computers. And guess where those are made?
0: China. Today, China consumes over half of the semiconductors that the world produces. Now, it does make some semiconductors itself, but it is by no means self-sufficient. It needs chips made in other countries using American designs. Now, in some sense, that's great. They can use this foreign technology and develop their economy and grow and awesome. But... Their reliance on American designs has turned out to be a problem.
1: That's because the Americans have issues with some of the stuff that the Chinese are making. After phones, tablets, and computers, the next most common use for these chips is in telecommunications networks. And so that's cell towers, base stations, modems, and routers, all the things you need to to download your your latest Trade Talks episode— But that is is the equipment that in future is is going to enable these 5G networks. That's the next generation of wireless communications that's super fast and going to enable self-driving cars, remote brain surgery, and and lots of exciting internet of things. Getting those 5G networks to work requires a lot of these cutting-edge semiconductors. And there are basically three companies buying the chips and, and making the equipment for the 5G. Ericsson. Nokia, and Huawei.
0: Chances are you have heard of Huawei. That company that is a giant Chinese national champion, that company that as well as making a ton of 5G equipment also makes a lot of smartphones. In the second quarter of 2020, it was the biggest supplier of handsets in the world. And that company that the US government is really suspicious of.
1: That suspicion has been around for a while. The US government is worried that there are ties between Huawei and the the Chinese government and that the Chinese government has more control over the company than is clear. And the Americans are worried that through the equipment, the Chinese government might somehow get information flowing through these 5G networks that they could then use for for spying or, or blackmail, maybe to intercept military communications.
0: Now, obviously, Huawei would deny that that it was associated with any of that. We asked Kevin Wolf how long he thought the U.S. concerns with Huawei had been around. He started working for the U.S. government back in 2010.
2: Well, long before I was in the government, certainly. And certainly when I was in the government, there were concerns with respect to Huawei and its use of its telecommunications infrastructure in order to engage in espionage, exfiltrate data, or to engage in uh, cyber hacking activities. When I was there in uh, March of 2016, we added uh, ZTE, another large Chinese telecommunications company to the entity list, which I'll describe in just a moment. And as was reported and is in the documents that we made uh, public as part of that, there were also concerns about a company called F7, which was code for referring to Huawei. So I can't get into what was or wasn't being investigated when I was in the government, but concerns and issues involving Huawei have been around for quite some time.
0: So the code for Huawei was F7, which is kind of a lame code name. Uh, if there is ever an investigation into me, I really want to be called like Tariff 4 or, or Sparkles 3 or, or something. Uh, Chad, what would you be called?
1: Well, I was thinking for you, maybe Cat Lady 2020 would be the, the, the way to go.
0: I feel like there might be negative associations to that, and I want to be like, you know, James Bond villain, cool. Um, Okay, anyway, the U.S. government has these concerns about Huawei, and so it has essentially started to turn the screws on the company. In 2018, security concerns were behind part of a bill signed into law that banned the U.S. federal government from using Huawei equipment
1: then they went a lot further. In in January 2019, the Trump administration accused Huawei of stealing U.S. technology, money laundering, and helping Iran avoid sanctions for trying to acquire nuclear weapons. Now, Huawei denied the allegations, and, and this case is still ongoing. But still, the U.S. government went ahead with punishment anyway. In May of 2019, it started trying to cut off Huawei's access to semiconductors.
0: Just to emphasize here There were all these concerns about spying and and connections between semiconductor purchases and the Chinese government, but the legal grounds that the U.S. government used in this case were not relevant to those.
1: Right. Maybe because those things are are harder to prove. But in any case, what the U.S. government did is it started applying export controls. It put Huawei on something that Kevin referred to earlier, what he called the, the entity list, And if an American company wants to export anything to to anyone on the entity list, it has to apply for a special license.
0: Yeah, it's probably quite tricky to run a business that depends on getting that license approved. We asked Kevin what this meant.
2: The entity list means that any export from the United States or any shipment of a U.S. origin item or any shipment of a small number of foreign-made items with sensitive content or made from sensitive U.S. technology cannot go to an entity on the list without a license. And being cut off from the U.S. economy can generally create leverage to create incentives for that foreign company to change the behavior that caused it to be added to the list. And there's a process by which foreign companies can go into the Commerce Department and say, what do I need to do to get off of this list so I can continue receiving items from the United States? And that's where the discussion begins about getting it to change its uh, behavior.
0: Historically, you put a foreign company on the entity list to punish it for things that you didn't like, and you created incentives for them to clean up their act. Hey, I don't like the fact that you are sending sensitive technology to countries that might use it to build nukes, You were on the entity list. But if you stop doing it, then you can buy things from us again. That's how things were. But with this Huawei decision, it was really not clear what the U.S. government was trying to achieve. What did it want Huawei to do?
2: So the traditional objective for an entity listing is to create economic leverage over a company outside the U.S. in order to get it to change its behavior Uh, by holding out as the carrot the ability to continue receiving parts and components and other items from the United States. Um, The Huawei listing wasn't identified as having a particular objective in mind, uh, other than to list it as a result of the sanctions violations alleged in the indictment. But what became clear is that the administration wanted to impose significant economic uh, impact on Huawei the damage here
1: was was pretty broad. The restriction didn't just apply to chips for Huawei's 5G equipment. It applied to chips for smartphones too. If you kind of squint at it, it looks like the United States was, was trying to cause so much economic damage to Huawei that they wouldn't be able to supply the 5G equipment being rolled out around the world. And I guess maybe smartphone chips were included too because profits from, from that bit of their business Could have been used to prop up the other bit, where you know their five G part. It's not simply like you could swap them in. A chip for a smartphone is definitely different from one that that goes into a five G base station. And so, what it looked like was that the U.S. government was was going after Huawei's business in general, rather than just the the set of activities that they didn't like.
0: This restriction was supposed to hurt. Huawei buys a lot of chips that are either designed or made by American companies. Except there was a loophole.
2: Because most of the foreign-made items that it apparently needed to purchase to allow it to continue functioning were uh, available outside of the United States, even if manufactured by U.S. companies. Because unlike sanctions, the ownership or the nationality of the company involved is not a relevant consideration about whether the commodity, software, or technology is eligible for export from outside the U.S. to a listed entity.
1: Basically, Huawei could still buy chips designed or or manufactured by American companies, but that weren't being physically produced in the United States. So a chip designed by, by a U.S. company, but manufactured by TSMC in Taiwan, that was fine. Huawei could also still buy chips that were designed by other companies like Samsung in South Korea. So as long as they weren't getting the chips directly from the United States, things were okay. But obviously, that really wasn't fun for American manufacturers that were worried about losing market share. They were pretty unhappy about all this.
0: In May of 2020, the U.S. government went one step further. Here's Kevin.
2: In May of 2020, the Commerce Department published an amendment to the jurisdictional scope of the regulations specific to Huawei, saying that if you have a foreign-made item, even if it has no U.S. origin components and not made from any U.S. technology, if it was designed by Huawei and it was produced using U.S. origin tools or U.S. origin software, then its shipment to Huawei would be illegal uh, without a
0: license. Essentially, the government expanded the scope of the restrictions. And it it turns out that this amendment actually also had a loophole, so they had to rewrite it again and and roll out in August. Um, But now it looks like they've pretty much got it. So chips made anywhere with American tools or American software cannot be sold to Huawei without a license. That covers a lot more chips.
1: Taking tools first... Even the ones used in, in Taiwan or South Korea, the ones in those $10 billion semiconductor fabs, some of them are supplied by American companies. But these are different American companies than the ones we've talked about so far. These are companies like Applied Materials, LAM Research, KLA. And then going on to software, even if Huawei's subsidiary, HiSilicon, is, is designing the chip, it's probably using American software to do it. And there's three other American companies that, that dominate this part of the industry. The Semiconductor Industry Association says that these three companies, Cadence, Synopsis, and Mentor Graphics, that's their names, the three of them supply 85% of the world software that you need to do this design. So yeah, when you put together that all the chips are made either using American tools or they're designed using American software, you really are cutting off Huawei from a lot of the chips.
0: It really does look like the US government is trying to get to Huawei. And and that does come with risks. Other companies could get the signal that they shouldn't rely on American origin components. Maybe they're going to hit by these export restrictions at some point. And commercially that could be a really really big deal. The Semiconductor Industry Association reports that in dollar terms, more than a third of all American semiconductors are sold to a company in China. More than one in five are sold to a Chinese device company. China has a bunch of really, really big smartphone companies that use a lot of American chips. If those companies are suddenly cut off from their biggest buyers, they they are not going to be happy. Now, I'm not saying that there are there are no benefits, but there are costs.
1: And I guess the, the $100 billion question is, is whether the U.S. government is actually anywhere close to achieving its underlying national security objective. If we think the aim is, is really to make it harder for Huawei to, to supply lots of 5G equipment, then is this policy actually working?
0: I think the answer is that it is pretty hard to tell. Huawei is not a publicly listed company, but it does look like the restrictions have been having an impact, at least on their smartphone business. It looks like they have been stockpiling to try to avoid the restrictions. Imports of semiconductors into China rose a lot in 2020. The company has also been reporting shortages in some chips for making smartphones. There's been some speculation that they could be holding back on their Chinese smartphone suppliers so that they can keep up appearances, keep up their market share abroad, the idea being that their customers in China are more loyal. That was in a piece by Yuan Yang of the FT and and a previous Trade Talks guest. Huawei's also been trying to reorganize its business to, to cope with these restrictions. It's been trying to sell off some of its smartphone business to a consortium of, of Chinese companies and, and also the Shenzhen uh, local government. They might be able to buy the American chips if that if that sale goes through.
1: Huawei's also desperate, obviously, to, to try to develop their own chip-making capacity, Though I think it's going to be a while before it could it certainly replicate the U.S. chips it has lost access to You know, if it would ever be able to do so, especially since the big manufacturers that, that it might otherwise turn to all use the, the U.S. equipment and software that's now being cut off. Obviously, the, the U.S. government would really not achieve its objective if in the long run, Huawei was just fine and, and could supply all the 5G equipment in the world, while the American semiconductor companies are just out there losing market share.
0: Yeah, I, I think stepping back, it's clear that these restrictions have affected and, and hurt Huawei. But whether it hurts Huawei enough that the US government gets what it wants is is unclear. For now, it looks like those export restrictions are not going anywhere. Congress passed a law saying Huawei cannot be taken off the entity list unless the commerce secretary is willing to certify that the company no longer poses a national security threat. Now, I haven't seen the intelligence, of course, but I'm not sure a Biden administration commerce secretary is going to certify that.
1: I think one obvious question is, could this have been done some other way? I'll be the first to admit that I'm a trade economist and, and not a national security expert, and I, and I do appreciate that these things are hard. But the question is, were there other options if your real objective is to reduce the risk of this economic espionage that might be coming through 5G equipment?
0: One perhaps less painful option for American semiconductor makers could have been to restrict chip sales related to 5G equipment, but to leave smartphone chips alone then American companies could have kept their smartphone business, made lots of profits, and the general message about American suppliers being unreliable wouldn't be so strong. Now, I guess the counter to that is, if you think that the lower profits in the smartphone business make it harder to support the 5G business, then then maybe that makes sense.
1: Another option might have been to subsidize Huawei's competitors, so competing telecommunications equipment makers so that when internet providers and and telecom communication companies were looking to buy more 5G equipment, there was just more choice. Now, the the US Congress has just passed legislation that is actually going to subsidize semiconductor makers. So the question is, why not do the same thing for, for 5G equipment? The problem in the United States, of course, is that there just aren't any American companies making this 5G equipment. There's really only Huawei, Sweden's Ericsson, Finland's Nokia, and a little bit from Samsung. And the issue is, if you believe there's a problem with the Huawei equipment, then you don't really want any of it out there. Because when US data flows anywhere around the world, it's going to be flowing through loads and loads of different equipment. And there's always this potential, if Huawei's part of the network, that it could be capturing it.
0: The other thing that governments in general could do is influence the demand for Huawei products. A combination of U.S. pressure and also government's own concerns have meant that there are lots of governments around the world restricting uh, what companies can buy in terms of 5G equipment from Huawei. And also, you may not have noticed, but the U.S. government is actually now subsidizing through USAID. They're subsidizing African countries acquiring 5G equipment from European suppliers. So they're paying these countries to buy from europe and not huawei
1: one other thing that you could do that's being proposed is to go in a completely different direction when it comes to the type of, of 5g network that you're trying to install there's this thing out there called open ran the way to think about it is a lot of 5g equipment is built only to be compatible with with 5g equipment from exactly the same provider so the huawei stuff only works with the huawei stuff the Ericsson stuff only works with the Ericsson stuff. There was an article in, in The Economist describing it that way. It's, it's, that's sort of like an, a landline phone. With this open ran. it's more like a smartphone where you can download all these apps and, and there just ends up being more interoperability. And so you're not locked into a, a one single company like Huawei. The way The Economist put it. With OpenRAN, operators had more insight into what was going on in their networks, and so they could potentially avoid buying into components that they just didn't trust. And so that, combined with maybe the constant threat of of competition, that could be used to help keep a company like Huawei in line, even if it were continuing to participate in these 5G networks.
0: Now, obviously, OpenRAN could hurt some of the other companies. It could hurt Ericsson and, and Nokia that also are making equipment under this relatively closed system. So they, they might not be that thrilled. And also, it's not at all clear that the supply chain could cope if everyone suddenly switched to, to Open RAN. But, you know, who knows? If enough people read The Economist's leader pages, then maybe it will take off.
1: talk about SMIC now?
0: Yes, Chad, we can. Okay, why why don't you tell us what SMIC is?
1: SMIC is China's biggest semiconductor manufacturer. So it is like TSMC. It has all of these fabs where it manufactures semiconductors. And on Friday, December 18th, it joined Huawei on the US Department of Commerce's entity list.
0: Like an early Christmas present. This was really nothing to do with Huawei. There was a briefing call. Senior Commerce Department officials made it very clear that earlier restrictions already meant that SMIC couldn't sell any chips made with U.S. software or IP to Huawei. This is something different.
1: The way they explain it, basically the fear is that SMIC is using American technology to make chips for the Chinese military. So SMIC is making semiconductors to be used in things like medium-range missiles, ballistic missiles, or exoskeletons for, for, for soldiers out there on the battlefield, or Chinese military aircraft. One official said, and I quote, we simply no longer could stand by and watch our adversary using our technology to support its military capabilities. For its part, SMIC has repeatedly denied any linkages to the Chinese military.
0: This seems like a more traditional use of these export controls. There is a much more direct military link. And there's also targeting within the restrictions. So essentially, any technology that is used to make a semiconductor smaller than 10 nanometers, uh, that's really, really small. These are the, the really fancy ones. Any technology used to make those is absolutely denied. Don't even bother applying for an export license for those. But larger than that, and you're getting to more generic semiconductors that, that aren't really on the cutting edge, and those are less likely to be used in, the, in the, the military functions that the commerce department is worried about. And so those commerce will consider on a case-by-case basis. It does look like they're really trying to target the high-tech chips and not the cheaper, high-volume, more basic ones.
1: Now, SMIC can't actually make semiconductors smaller than 10 nanometers at the moment, It has plans to, but right now, at least, it doesn't have the machine tools to be able to make those really fancy semiconductors. But a big question is whether the Commerce Department will actually grant the licenses so that SMIC can continue to make those lower-end semiconductors. My understanding, talking to, to industry experts, is the world really can't live without SMIC right now. SmIC is is to semiconductors what China in general was to say personal protective equipment like hospital masks early in the in the pandemic the semiconductors that smIC makes aren't super expensive or complicated once the plant is set up they run a, a low profit margin high volume business but they do a lot of the world's volume of those types of semiconductors. And if you suddenly cut SMIC off from making those, you know, budget semiconductors, all the basic ones you need for your TVs, your radios, your cars, they might not be available. And that could lead to shortages of those types of semiconductors out there in the world.
0: We will see. We will see how generous commerce decides to be. We will see how SMIC and how Huawei cope with these restrictions. There is going to be a lot to watch in the news, and hopefully after listening to this episode, you will be able to make better sense of that news. And with that, that is all for Trade Talks.
1: A huge, huge thanks to to Kevin Wolf at Aiken Gump for sharing his insights, and to everyone else I spoke to in the semiconductor industry for teaching me so much about this fascinating sector.
0: A special thanks from me to Dan Hutchison of VSLI Research. I didn't actually speak to him for this episode in particular, but in general, in the past he has been a fountain of knowledge on the semiconductor industry. Thank you. Dan is also a Trade Talks listener and got in touch a while back when we asked people to do that. A reminder that we do really love that. We love friends in this cold, cold world.
1: I actually have two plugs I'd like to make this week. The first one is for a recent paper that I've written about this topic titled, How the United States Marched the Semiconductor Industry into its Trade War with China. And that paper has even more numbers in it, as well as uh, the story of how today and what's going on here differs from the 1980s semiconductor trade war that the United States had with Japan. The second thing is, is I wanted to plug a memo on export controls that my Peterson Institute colleague, Martin Chorzempa, has recently written as, as part of our Peterson Institute Rebuilding the Global Economy project. Do check it out. It's on the Peterson Institute's website.
0: Massive thanks to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samea Keynes.
1: And I'm at Chad Bowne.
0: And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks.
1: That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks.
0: And also, to conclude this week, we wanted to introduce the latest member of the Trade Talks team.
1: Colin, what what was that? Well, hi, everybody. That is the newest addition to our family. She is 19 days old, seven pounds, five ounces, and her name is
2: Genevieve Rose.
1: And that's my son. He's three.
2: Woohoo!